Let's just pray before we begin. Gracious Father, thank you that you allow us to take part in what you are doing in this world. We're just so grateful, and we ask that as we contemplate um, another avenue of being involved in medicine, that you would open our ears and open our hearts, and that we would see you and what you would have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the basis of this talk is that it's not on. How do I turn it on? I was just told to put this on. I wasn't told how to turn it on. Um, Is there anybody technical in the room here? Well, it says mode and set. A button on here? Can you hear me now? Is that any better? No. It wasn't on. I was just told to put this on. So I'm put. Is that any better? No. Uh, I don't see any button on that. What about the other mic here that's on the left? Is that something? The other mic? Isn't there something like another wire? That one? Yeah. Okay. Oh my. Okay. They didn't say anything about this one. Like this? Yeah. Okay. So the the basis of this talk is that offering palliative care services is a strategic inroad to medical missions anywhere, in any situation. Missions, ministry, um, in a religious community, a non-religious community, or in your home community. Um, Some of you might have heard the presentation yesterday by Luke about uh, medical ministry as in outreached, sorry, in out as outreach in closed communities. And he talked about medical ministry giving the reason d'etre and um, a platform for demonstrating the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. So I'm a family physician, and along with my husband, uh, Jeff Prothero, we worked with Africa Inland Mission in Lesotho for eight years had a hiatus of uh, five years back in Canada when I had cancer. Then we went to Nairobi and lived for five years. Um, I was working in a slum south of the city in an HIV AIDS program. Found that this was before the advent of readily available antiretroviral medications and I was essentially doing palliative care. 
but had no training in it and kept thinking there must be a body of knowledge about taking care of people at end of life. And so when our middle child started university, we were at home for an extended period of time. And I um, started working in hospice care and then did a fellowship in palliative care. We returned to the coast of Kenya and uh, worked in a a town that was about 50% Muslim, 50% non-Muslim. And uh, during our three years there, I helped the government hospital set up the Malindi Sub-County Hospital Palliative Care Program. And so that is my background. And what we're going to do during this session is we're going to reflect on a definition of palliative care. What is palliative care? Then we're going to estimate the scope of patients in need of palliative care. Like, is there really enough palliative care patients to run a palliative care program? We're going to identify needs of palliative care patients, consider the building blocks of a palliative care program, and then check out some resources. So the mandatory, I have no sponsorships or conflicts of interest. So let's start with the World Health Organization definition of palliative care. It's a bit long. An approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illnesses through the prevention and relief of suffering by the means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. So that's a lot of words. What do they mean? So I've color-coded things here for you with some questions. It's the same definition at the bottom, but it's some questions at the front. What I'd like you to do is read through this slide and think about how it impacts your practice of medicine. Then turn to the person next to you If there's nobody next to you, find somebody. And tell them what surprises or intrigues you about this definition. So I'll just give you three minutes to do that. So go ahead, think of it, and then turn to someone next to you and talk about it. What surprises you or intrigues you about this definition?
Okay. Let's continue. So there are other simpler definitions of palliative care that don't quite include the scope of the World Health Organization definition. Um, this is one taken from something called the Palliative Care Toolkit, something that you can uh, look up on the web, very good resource. Palliative care is all about looking after people with incurable illnesses, relieving their suffering, and supporting them through difficult times. It's simply how we care for people that won't get better. Some other points, we already uh, looked at addressing spiritual, psychosocial, and uh, physical issues. But you know, we will all die. None of us has ever done it before. And perhaps that's why most people don't want to talk about it. There's no been there, done that, no sense of mastery. To many of us in the medical profession, death is looked on as failure. And maybe it's my failure to keep the person alive. But we all die. So practicing palliative care is accepting this and choosing to walk the journey with the patient, despite our lack of personal experience, and offer our professional services as people who share in their humanity and have walked with others on the journey. So that's the definition. But what are these life-threatening illnesses that we're talking about? There are lots of life-threatening illnesses that can benefit by palliative care. So I'm going to get you to be a bit active again. Get together in groups of two to four, how many ever, and come up with at least five life-threatening illnesses that might benefit from palliative care. So when you have five on your list, then stand up. When everybody's done, we'll know. You've got to stand up and stay standing so that we'll know when everybody's done. No, everybody has to stand up in your group. Then we'll know when everybody's done. Okay, we're almost all done. Shout them out. Okay, someone from over here. What's one? Just one. HIV AIDS. Okay, someone over in this area. Heart failure. Okay, over here. Dementia. Very good. Renal failure. COPD. Any more? Cancer. Okay, you can sit down. Okay, cancer, HIV, AIDS, renal failure, liver failure, motor neuron disease, that's one that didn't come up. And then 
All of these are life-threatening illnesses. And there's one more. Patients for whom you answer yes to the surprise question. What is the surprise question? The surprise question is, would I be surprised if sometime within this next year I heard the patient had died? Those patients need palliative care. Okay, why do people need palliative care? Why do they need anything special? Well, one of the reasons, and one of the reasons is because of pain. We estimate that about 80% of people dying from cancer and 50% of those dying from AIDS experience not a little bit of pain, but moderate or severe pain, lasting not for an hour or a day or a week, but for an average of 90 days. This is significant. This is suffering. That's one reason. And this reason is um, one of the, the reasons that we emphasize pain in developing countries because they don't have, many don't have the access to the analgesics that, that we have. It's often the most important reason for people in um, developing countries. With relationship-oriented cultures in many developing countries, psychosocial needs are often better met than in developed countries. And this has been borne out in uh, at least one study done between the palliative care needs of people in Kenya and in Scotland. In Kenya, they needed pain relief. In Scotland, what they were missing was the social supports. Okay, so how many people are there in need of palliative care? I mean, you know, is it, is it really justified when there's infectious diseases that are killing people? Is there really a need of palliative care? Well, let's look. This um, website here is from Cancer Research UK. Um, so cancer is one of the palliative illnesses. How many people would you expect need palliative care from cancer? So... I will, I've got up the, the web page for Cancer UK, um, and I did Kenya. I worked in Malindi, Kenya, so I thought, let's have a look at how many, how many people in the area would need palliative care because of cancer. So, in this map, you can see that Kenya is outlined there, and it has a higher than average number of people of, of cancer mortality. The pink is higher and the, the blue is lower. So Kenya is a pink area. And at the bottom, I don't know if you can read it, it says there's about 135 deaths from cancer for every 100,000 people in the year 2012. So you can go to this website and look at whatever country you might be thinking of going to and see how many people um, per 100,000 adults would die. If you go down a little bit on that same web page, uh, you can find out other interesting information. For instance, in Kenya, the top four cancers causing mortality have no, interlap, no um, interface with the top four for the rest of the world. 
In Kenya, you're looking at cancer of the esophagus, cancer of the cervix, Kaposi's sarcoma, and prostate cancer has been the top four causes of death. Uh, worldwide, it's lung, liver, stomach, and bowel. But that's kind of getting off the topic here. So let's look at an example from Melindy. Um, in Kenya, 135 cancer deaths per 100,000. The Melindy population is about 200,000 people. Um, now, this is adults. So there's 58% adults and 42% under 15. You just go and go on the web and look at um, the statistics. I found this from the Kaiser Family Foundation. So 50% adults of the 200,000 would mean there's about 116,000 adults in Melindy. And 135 per 100,000 would mean there's 157 cancer deaths expected yearly in Melindy. And, you know, your statistics aren't necessarily 100% accurate, but it gives you a basic idea of what you're looking for. So you've got 200 patients a year who are 80% of them have moderate to severe pain for an average of 90 days or more. But, you know, cancer patients aren't the only ones in need of palliative care. We had this whole list of um, patients, so easily double that many. So let's go back to our definition and look at the scope of palliative care. Physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. This is the World Health Organization definition, not mine. And let's look at a case study. Anna. You can read through this. She's 49 years old, divorced, mother and single parent to her 16-year-old daughter. She was raised Catholic, but she's not observant. She had breast cancer diagnosed 13 years ago, but, and it's been metastatic for the last seven years. Her skeleton is full of cancer. Before her cancer, she was an executive in a very large clothing store chain and worked until about five years ago when her disease had progressed to the extent that she couldn't work anymore. She's taking 50 milligrams of long-acting morphine twice daily and short-acting milligrams, 10 milligrams for breakthrough. She's also on a few other medications, some dexamethasone as well. She doesn't talk about her cancer in the presence of her daughter. Her mom and her sister live close by. Her sister is a support to her, but Anna feels like she's the one supporting her mother because the mother does not cope well with Anna's disease. And Anna's daughter has recently acquired a boyfriend. So, look through this and decide what are some potential sources of suffering for this woman. Get together in groups of three or four and, give, uh, and think about her suffering. So I would like people on this side of the room to think about physical suffering. This uh, area to think about psychological suffering. The front half here on this side to think about spiritual suffering and the back uh, psychological suffering. Okay, I'll just give you three or four minutes to think about this woman's suffering, potential areas of suffering as you look at this.
So I'm sure you came up with some potential sources of suffering. This is a list of just some of the needs that palliative patients have. Um, Not all of them have all of them, and there are other needs as well. But, But these are some, and they are extensive. As medical professionals, we tend to think about the body, about pain, and about the nausea. But it's important to think widely, and we don't find out about these needs until we ask our patients. So we have to think about them, think about the possibilities, because they all contribute to what we call total pain or total suffering. A little bit of physical pain and a little bit of social pain and a little bit of psychological pain and a little bit of spiritual pain can lead to a lot of suffering. And so we need to ask our patients about their spirituality, about, you know, are they having questions? We need to ask about their families, about what's going on with their kids. We need to ask about their anxieties and about how they're coping with the grief. The grief isn't just when someone dies. The grief is the little losses the loss of standing in their occupation, the loss of uh, a future, many little losses that they cope with along the way. It leads to total suffering. We need to attend not just to the disease, but to the suffering of human beings. That's what palliative care is about, addressing the suffering. So, How do we start going about this, especially in a missions context? How do we begin? So in some circles, these are called the four pillars of the public health approach to palliative care. You need to have medication. That's the drug availability. You need education. You need to actually do the palliative care, and you need to have the policy that kind of governs what you do and allows you to do what you do. So, like, which comes first? Do you do, do you get the drugs? Do you do the education? Do you implement? Do you make sure there's policy? Well, I would say you do all of them first. It's kind of like saying, in medical school or nursing school, should you learn anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, or interviewing skills first? We learn them all together. And we study them concurrently. And what we learn in one course builds on another. And the same in palliative care. Where there's the opportunity and need, then we work on the the various ones. So these are some questions to think of when starting a, a when you want to start a palliative care program. What are the different categories of people that need education? Who can you talk to about palliative care who might be interested? What are the obstacles you'll have to come overcome in education? What drugs will you need? And what are the obstacles for, overco- for obtaining them? Obstacles for making them available to your patients. Now, you might think that this area is small, 
but it's not. Um, one of the very important drugs to have available is opioids. And in many countries of the world, there is opiophobia. People are afraid of opioid medications. And when I was training, I graduated in 1983, opioids were something that hardly anybody ever used, maybe the surgeons for post-op pain, but you didn't use it really on an outpatient basis. And so in many countries of the world, it's simply not available. And getting access to this medication to be available for your patients is a big hurdle. Okay, implementation. How and where might you begin? What resources has God already given you to start a program? And then what might require new policy? So who needs education? Well, I would say anybody and everybody. Education starts with creating awareness. Um, And at the end, I'll list some resources, very good resources for creating awareness. But there's resources available to teach every catter. And as you talk with these people, you'll find out who God has uniquely gifted to walk with you. In the early days of my time in Malindi at the hospital, there hadn't been very many palliative care patients identified. And so I spent a lot of time just talking to staff members, and I kind of felt guilty about it uh, because here I was just talking to people and not attending to patients. But as those relationships were built, these were some of the key people who were were helpful in getting the palliative care program going because they knew what palliative care was about. And God had given them the desire to do something about palliative care, to go forward. God had shown them the need. And they're not... Not everybody involved in palliative care is the person with the gifts of communication and gentleness and patience. One physiotherapist who was very much interested in palliative care was not gifted that way at all. But she was a great administrator. She knew how to get things done. And she believed in the palliative care program. And so she made things happen in ways that I couldn't. So whoever God brings across your path to help out, it's it's God's work. It's not our own work. So, a bit more about drug availability as one of these pillars. Developing countries consume about 9% of the world's morphine, even though they count for 83% of the world's population. The WHO views the consumption of opioids, including morphine, to be the indicators of a country's capability to treat moderate to severe pain. So we know that it's a struggle. It took me six months to get uh, morphine for our hospital when we were in Malindi. It's just not easy. And Kenya is probably an easier country than others you might work in. There's various reasons for that. Um, Some of the Asian countries see opioid use as um, 
um, controlling, as colonial controlling because of past history, opiates were used to um, sedate the populace, basically. But, you know, we have help. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, the WHO has put out a list of essential medicines in palliative care. This is a list of 13, and it's easily available off of their website. This was generated in 2012. It's a little bit, 2013, I guess. It's a little bit out of date, but um, it's, a, it's a great reference. Not all drugs will necessarily be available to you, but you can substitute um, for instance, they've got fluoxetine to treat depression, but you could use any other SSRI as well in that list. Um, so, the list of medicines is available. Policies. Well, you know, wherever you are, different policy problems come up. For us, it was, where are the opioids kept in the pharmacy? Or where are they kept on the ward? A lot of patients' medications were kept at the bedside. Is it okay to keep opioids at the bedside, or do they have to be kept in the locked nurse's cupboard? What if you want to give opioids more than three times a day, and the nurses only give out drugs three times a day? Lots of different policy things. Or who pays for the expenses of the home visits if you're doing a home, uh, a home care component to your palliative care? So we realize that there are lots of people with palliative needs. Many of them suffer. So how do we go about developing the program? We've looked at education, drug availability, and policy. But what about implementation? What does it actually look like? Well, it's different. Everywhere you go, palliative care programs are different. But there are some essentials. There is compassion. There is... Uh, kindness, gentleness, and patience. These are key issues from a palliative care program. Compassion, a deep awareness of the suffering of others, coupled with the wish to relieve it. It's, it's not negotiable. Compassionate acts are generally considered those which take into account the suffering of others and attempt to alleviate that suffering as if it were one's own. Core components. Dignity. Expressions of kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, respect. Treating a patient's severe arthritis and not knowing their core identity as a musician. Providing care to a woman with metastatic breast cancer and not knowing that she's the sole carer for two young children. Attempting to support a dying patient and not knowing that he or she is devoutly religious. Each of these scenarios is like trying to operate in the dark. We need to treat our patients with dignity. We need to have communication skills, how to talk to families about bad news, hope, spiritual issues. And it's mostly about knowing what questions to ask and knowing how to actively listen. Knowledgeable care. We are, we are responsible to do a good job of what we do. So there are lots of, lots of um, resources available. One of them is something called a palliative care toolkit. There's the pallium, palliative pocketbook. There's courses in CME and palliative care. There's week-long courses. There's year-long courses. 
for doctors, for nurses. There's all kinds of things available. This is uh, the Palliative Care Toolkit. It's a, a book booklet that was made for people working in low-resource um, programs overseas. It has a um, trainer's manual for it. It's in seven different languages, and it's very useful. It has a, an adult education-styled um, a trainer's manual, and very useful for, for working with community groups, even doctors and nurses overseas. This is an African proverb. If you want to travel quickly, go alone. If you want to travel far, go together. Palliative care is not something that can be done by one person. It requires a team. And that's one of the reasons that I talked about educating broadly, talking to lots of different people, and find out who has the same passion as you. Another thing that's very important to remember, in, in our Western society, palliative care is usually provided by professionals, but it doesn't need to be. The bulk of it doesn't need to be provided by professionals. Who knows how to meet, meet social needs? Who, needs? who knows how to meet spiritual needs and psychological needs? Often it's community members. And so this is a, uh, a model of person-centered care. There's the person in the middle, then there's the inner network, the people, close family members that care for them. And then there's the outer network, people that help fill in the gaps because of um, the inner network. So, for instance, somebody is ill. Close family members care for that person. But who walks their dogs or takes the kids to swimming lessons now that they're caring for their elderly parent? Others gather around and help out. Now, in an in a African context, it might be who... Um, you know, cooks a meal or who gives a little bit for school fees or who hauls the drinking water. So the outer network helps them. And then when, when, the, um, when there are still needs, the community meets that need. And only for these other needs do the service providers need to come in, things that can't be met by the community. This is, this is where palliative care is going, involving the community. So again, back to our definition. Physical, psychosocial, and spiritual needs. So these are some of the questions that we address when thinking about starting a palliative care program. The implementation. Who needs palliative care in our area? What kind of cancers do you have? What, is there a lot of COPD? Is there a lot of renal failure? Who, who are the people that need? Are there a lot of children who are dying? HIV. What, what are, who are the people that need palliative care? And what are their main problems? You know, in, in, in Kenya, there was um, a lot of cervical cancer. And if you have a program that, that doesn't meet the needs of women with cervical cancer, then, then you can't have an effective program. So what are their main programs? What help are they already getting? And then what could be added to, make, to improve their care and make it holistic? 
And then another, these are from the palliative care toolkit. And then a question that I added at the bottom, what resources do I already have that I can work with? Really important. We don't need to build, we don't need to get in people. See what God has given you. We don't need to access a whole bunch of funds before we start. We start with what God has given us. Again, in, in my context, it was the East African Women's League. There was the professional contact, the contacts. There was even the cleaners. Sometimes the cleaners in the hospital were more interested than the internist was, for example. Whoever can help you. There are lots of examples of palliative care programs starting. One was interesting from Kerala, India. It was what... what the uh, program did is it got it invited people from an area from a geographic area brought them in gave them a two-hour session on what is palliative care and said if you want more training then come back and we'll give you a week-long training so these groups of people came back for a week-long training and then they said go and give palliative care in your area And the people went home and built their own program. They owned this program. They had learned about palliative care. They went out and identified the social needs. And within five years, there was 68 palliative care programs going. Quite amazing. But but this is a, a largely Christian area of India, and people took what they had learned and reached out to their their neighbors with this. So we're just about out of time, but there's a few things, a few parting shots I want to leave with you. And that is how you introduce palliative care. Regardless of cultural differences, whether people embrace palliative care depends universally on how it's introduced. If palliative care is marketed as end-of-life care, there's reluctance. If it's marketed as a way to have a much better life and help you live longer, then it's more acceptable. And there is evidence to uh, show us that people who are involved in palliative care early on in their disease trajectory live longer. So it needs to be introduced that way. Palliative care can't be done by a single person alone. Build the vision for both palliative care as a team approach and community involvement from the very beginning. Pain control without holistic support is not palliative care. Psychosocial and spiritual support without pain and symptom control is not palliative care. You must have the symptom symptom control with the psychosocial and spiritual support to actually be palliative care. So it's important to build the spiritual, psychosocial, and community aspect from the very start. And there are a lot of resources to help you as you embark on something like this. There are teaching personnel in the UK who are palliative care specialists who will go out to various places and help people who want to start programs, help with the teaching. There's palliative care curricula, lots of them. 
There's one um, developed for Vietnam. There's the Palliative Care Toolkit that I've talked about. All of that's downloadable off the web. Um, there's WHO planning for palliative care, the essential medicines. There is um, pocketbooks. There's palliative care news um, from around the world, something called e-hospice, where you can find out lots and lots of information. So palliative care, palliative care is a way to minister to people a holistic way. Psychosocial and spiritual care is built into the definition of palliative care. So it gives us access to be in Muslim countries anywhere. It is a, um, it's a way of building relationships with people, with the patients, but with the staff. Some of the um, closest relationships I built was with the staff and helping them to, to understand palliative care and helping them to show patients dignity. Um, those of you who have practiced overseas, maybe not everywhere, but the places we've worked, very hierarchical. The doctor is up here and the nurses are up here and you can step on anybody else. And showing, showing God's way of relating to people, um, how God wants us to show people dignity. It's a, a very, very viable way to reach out to people. So I'm told that my time is finished, but there is time for questions. So I'm wondering what questions you might have. Just a comment. The uh, medicines that you have listed from the WHO, those were chosen by understanding and by involvement in the WHO. Is they were chosen not because of primary and the most efficacy, but because they were most widely available and lowest cost. So it was more a uh, pragmatic issue than the And you have to be pragmatic. You have to be pragmatic. Yeah. How do you introduce the need and the benefit of using opiates in these developing countries? It starts slowly. Um, you have to access them, first of all. You have to talk about it with whoever you meet. Um, help people to understand that, give stories. You know, in other situations, this is what we do, this is what we did, this was the benefit. So it's talking to everyone you know, getting you know, getting to know the pharmacist and chatting with them and finding out what other doctors have done. How, you know, how do you treat these people who are in so much pain? Yeah. Raising awareness. Yeah, the question is, do I know anything about laws about uh, American physicians traveling overseas with opioids? I don't. I wouldn't do it. Don't do it. You will get caught. You will be going to jail. So it's, a it's accessing the medicines from the country that you're in. Yeah. 
Yep, question back here. Much better to, to figure out a way to access it in, in your own country. It's not sustainable to keep bringing it in from, from overseas, and, and it's dangerous. Okay. Other questions? Oh, sorry, couldn't see over there. And I think it depends on the country that you were in and the mindset of the people and the difficulties um, in your own local context. I, I don't think there's a sort of an overarching tool that, that would be good anywhere, but it's finding out what, what the difficulties are in your situation and, and addressing them with culturally appropriate ways of doing things, culturally appropriate stories about taking medicines. Yeah. Sorry, I can't help you there much. Okay. I think we're done then. Um, if anybody has any specific questions, anything they want to talk about, feel free.